0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate. We've been welcomed into the home of Diane Simard, and we're going to have a, a bit of a different podcast um, in that we're going to talk about kind of a before-why and an after-why experience. Diane, thanks for taking the time and extending the hospitality of your home.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Bob. Thank you for being here.
0: Absolutely. So, for the folks, if we could... Uh, if you would, a thumbnail sketch of a little bit of background, and then we'll dig in.
1: Absolutely. So today, I'm, uh, I wear many hats. Um, I'm part angel investor, businesswoman, philanthropist, uh, breast cancer survivor. Um, and I'm also very passionate about bringing attention to the impact, the psychological impact that a cancer uh, diagnosis can have on an individual.
0: You know, it's interesting when we were talking before we started the the episode at the various directions we could go. Mm -hmm. So you were the classic type A hard charging small business owner development person. Sure. 100 miles an hour. Absolutely. And you had an event. Yeah. I don't know if it was a routine exam or what, but take us to that experience for you.
1: Sure, sure. So I was 49 and a half years old. And of course, um, maybe it's this way for men too, but certainly for women, turning 50 is a big deal. Um, There's a lot of changes that happen to our body during that time. And at 49 and a half years old, in January of 2015, I had my mindset that the, the next phase of my life was going to be a lot more peaceful. The previous decade had been very challenging business-wise. I had invested in a lot of startup companies, had not had much success. The success that I'd had came from those companies that I was not involved with. <laughs> so my ego had been hurt. Um, but I was just ready to um, live peacefully things to be a lot calmer. I served on the boards of directors of several of the companies that I invested in. I was on the board of a bank that failed. And so the stress level had been um, monumental. And so uh, when I received the phone call, uh, after having had an annual mammogram, um, I I did what I was told to do. I'd had annual mammograms since I was 40 because I'd had a benign cyst when I was 40. Um, it was just a routine and I didn't expect anything would be different that year, but I got a phone call finally saying that the uh, results were concerning. And so I was called back for what's called um, a diagnostic mammogram and also an ultrasound test. And it was during that ultrasound test that the uh, ultrasound technician let it slip because I'm an inquisitive person. I have a journalism degree. So I'm always just asking why the questions and, um, she sat me up and she said, um, here's, here's." she pointed out, and to me it looks like snow on an ultrasound screen. And um, I said, how can you even tell what, what that means? And she said, well, I'm not supposed to say anything, but it doesn't look good. So that was the day that I likely suspected something was wrong. The radiologist came in, didn't even want to look at anything, and he said we're going to have to have a biopsy to determine that. And so all of a sudden, my morning went from, okay, got to get to the office. We got to do these things today, to saying, I might have breast cancer. I didn't mentally prepare myself for this. And so within the next 30 minutes, I went through very quickly the stages of shock and anger and denial. Some of them I just skipped over. And I just accepted that I likely was going to have breast cancer. And I called my husband, Renee, on the way back to the office. And he was kind of joking around. And I was all business. And I said, I, I may have breast cancer and I may die and I need you to make sure that all of these investments that I made, that nobody thinks that they're going to get off the hook just because I may die from cancer. I mean, that was my mindset within a a half an hour of even, I didn't even know yet whether it was cancer, but I had decided that it was. And so I uh, arrived at the office and very quickly was sitting there trying to figure out what do I do next? I mean, I'm certainly afraid. Do I tell people? Do I not tell people? And I'm such a horrible liar that I decided to let my colleagues know um, that I likely had breast cancer. And I did. I just was very open with them. And I said, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm going to have to have um, these areas of concern biopsy a week later. And so the way this happens is that... um, It can be a very slow process, just depending on how long it takes to get the information back. For me, it took four weeks from that day I had that ultrasound until the day I finally received the PET scan results, four weeks of contemplating whether I was going to live or going to die. And so during that time, I began journaling because I had so much happening in my mind. Um, I was speed reading through cancer books that I ordered just because I should all of a sudden start eating healthy, start eating better, doing all these things because that's what you do in business. Is, and I'm a fixer; is you just you do these things. So. Um, it
0: sounds a lot like what you would do with some of your startup issues. Yeah, What's the problem? Absolutely. We'll go ahead and charge forth. You know, and to segue just a second, looking back on how you approached and told everybody what was going on. Uh huh. If you had that to do over again, would you do that the same way?
1: Yeah, I would. And that's who I am. Um, I just have to be honest. And um not to get it off my chest, but just to say, I'm freaking out right here. And if I'm if I burst into tears, this is gonna this is why sure. <laughs> I'm scared. And so I just wanted my co-workers. And so um they really didn't know what to do with me because, oddly enough, I'm the solutions person. I'm the one that they go to when their lives are um, they are having challenges or to cry on my shoulder. So it was very alarming and startling for my coworkers to see, oh, my gosh, she's so strong. She's so in control. Maybe she's been breast or cursed with breast cancer. What do, what do I do now? How do I behave? How can we be there for her because she's always been there for us?
0: You know, I, I think about the persona of bulletproof. Yeah. You know, always the solution, always the strong person. Yeah. And you kind of go, I wake up and you go, being strong and being a type A and being in charge Yeah. doesn't eliminate the risk.
1: No, it doesn't. Um, and for whatever reason, I hadn't been one who had eaten organically and, you know, I wasn't that type of a person. What I was bothered by was the fact that dementia and heart disease was so prevalent in my family. Cancer was not. And so um, I had had bought a long-term care insurance (laughs) policy, um, have the heart checked. I drink decaf coffee, have my whole life. But I had never done anything to prevent cancer. And I'm like, geez, I didn't even think about this. Could I have done anything preventatively? Probably not. But it just was never part of my stuff to worry about plan. And so I was certainly angry at myself for that. I blamed myself, all that self-blame. But I also was um, thinking, boy, I, I'm going to assume that I may have to plan to not live through this because I had learned, thanks to business, when it came time to making a decision, I always learned to assume the worst. Um, and then if it turns out better than that, it's all it's, it's all a, good. <laughs> oh, it's all good after
0: that. You know, and and you were talking about journaling almost immediately. Yeah. How did that come to you?
1: Up until having breast cancer, I had never been comfortable expressing myself verbally. What I do in many of the jobs that I've done is really be the number two person behind the person who's out in front with this magical voice who can express himself or herself. And I'm the one propping them up, giving them the words to say or or getting the press releases out. Um, and so um, I just felt more comfortable. The words would come to me at the computer and I would I would talk about how weird it was to feel the cold hand of a doctor. You know, doctors have cold hands. And I, I, I've always just picked up on those details my whole life. And so I found that interesting because I, I very early on, even before I received the diagnosis, felt like it was important to capture these details what it smelled like, what it felt like, what it tasted like, um, how cold it was. Oh, it's so cold in in, an, in an MRI room. And just those little details, because what I was looking for as I was speed reading through all of these cancer books, I didn't know anything about breast cancer. I had to Google breast cancer. 115 million responses came back. I was embarrassed. I just knew that, um, for women later stages, um, for breast cancer meant you were going to lose your hair. That's about all I knew. And so I was trying to get smart behind the scenes and acting like I knew what I was talking about. I had no idea. Um, and so um, certainly information is, makes me feel comfortable. But I I just had this um, – I couldn't find what I was looking for in terms of what to expect. And there's plenty of books about cancer out there, wonderful, wonderful books. But I needed honest candid information about, as opposed to the um, information I was getting at the time, which was the, you know, the s- slick, shiny, lovely pictures of women in gorgeous bandanas and carefully applied makeup. And it's just, I didn't want the superficial, I wanted honest answers. Am I going to be sick? Am I going to lose my hair or not? Can I work through this? And what I realized is that cancer is such a unique experience based on your body chemistry. Um, I have a weak stomach. Um so no one can predict what it's going to be like. But I thought it might be helpful to capture these details. And so, um of course, there were a lot of people that uh, within our close circle of friends that knew that I had received a breast cancer diagnosis. and so there was the rumor mill was already circulating that it was late stage, I was likely gonna die. And so I knew I need, I wanted to get in front of that, but since I'm not a huge, I shouldn't say I'm not comfortable with social media. I'm getting there. Um, I just sent out email updates to about a hundred of our closest friends just to make sure that the information they were getting about this was from me because I had learned from my public relations and communications, um, training to manage the message. And I wanted to do that. So apparently I started to give a lot of these details about, and, and educational details about the process and, um, I had friends uh, email back and say, this is really amazing. No one has ever shared this level of detail before. Please give us more. And so I just would, that was my outlet. In fact, so much would jumble up in here during those four weeks of biopsies and tests and more tests and doctor visits and fear. And um, that by the time I um, received the results of the PET scan, which ended up, Thankfully, I learned that the the breast cancer had not um, gone any further than my lymph nodes. That um, I had a plan. I knew what exactly what I was going to do if it was terminal. I and and that brought me comfort. Believe it or not, was so you had your courses
0: plan. of action from yeah, your business absolutely.
1: career absolutely, yeah. and you know things in a logical, linear order, and so. So when I did receive the phone call from, it was from my surgeon that, and she and I played phone tag and, oh my gosh, you know, you can't leave a voicemail and say whether or not you have cancer. So she was at a conference. I was in a business meeting. It took an entire day. And so for that 24 hours before I got the phone call from her, I was in this um, vigil with God of like a perpetual state of prayer and... um Really reliving my life and what I had done wrong, the stupid things I had done, how I had tried to be good and fail—you know—all of that, and and I was just ready to accept my my fate, really, and and what the news was. And so when it was good news, I was just so grateful. To um, boy, we just caught it in time. I um I'd had a, as I mentioned annual mammograms, but my three breast tumors were so small that. Mammography didn't pick up on any of them, only picked up on the largest tumor, which was only two centimeters, that in January of 2015. And my oncologist later told me that I likely had cancer for a couple of years. And so um, typically, and again, I'm I'm just an atypical anomaly of a person, typically those initial tumors get much larger before it spreads to the closest lymph nodes. Mine didn't. So during that four weeks of all these tests, all the doctors would, you know, you know, we need to try to figure out whether... And no one could feel them. So the self-breast exam, everything mm-hmm. that they tell... You know, I did all that. They were too small, but it had already spread. And so the reason I didn't have any more biopsies, and this was all on my left side, I didn't have any more biopsies of my lymph nodes um, was because they were afraid that it would... Um, agitate the Mm -hmm. cancer and it would spread further. And so I only had one lymph node biopsy and it was cancerous. So
0: other than Uh, your test, you had zero symptoms of anything.
1: Oh, I couldn't feel a thing. I was fine. I was just getting ready to turn 50. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Um, So um, anyway, though, that they thought that maybe all five of those lymph nodes were impacted, which is why I got the nuclear bomb treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, They erred on the side of caution because, and I was just amazed that, are you kidding me? Our testing isn't any better than this. But all of these um, analyses that I was making, I just kind of cataloged in the back of my mind saying, wow, this is the best we can do. And so we over, um, we're just going to, Give you as much chemo as we can throw at you, which is what they prescribed for me, and so I had um, sixteen chemotherapy treatments first, um, and um, followed by two. I because those tumors were so small, I didn't have to have full mastectomies. It was an option, but it wasn't going to help prevent the cancer from coming back. Um, cancer to me, it, it there's not a lot of logic to it, um, and so. I chose to just have lumpe- lumpectomy surgery, mm-hmm. and then I had 33 radiation treatments. But the chemo started in late March, and I f- walked out of the radiation room for the last time December 21st. So it was a good 10 months of treatment. And so um, a lot of time um, I, I did work as much as I could through this. I wouldn't call it full-time. I certainly wasn't worth much at work because I couldn't retain anything. I felt nauseous. Almost all the time during the five months of chemo, and then I just didn't have the energy. And uh, this process really zaps you. It's amazing, um, and there's not a lot you can do, preventively, to make it go any better.
0: You know, it's. The, the, I think every family, one way or another, unless they're really incredibly fortunate, has cancer that's gone through. Mm-hmm. And certainly, my family, you, and you, you know, you're you're the poster child for your family. Yeah. And, you know, you think about, we we try to explore why people do what they do. And you had a clearly defined why pre-diagnosis. You know, you were trying to excel and run a business and do all the stuff that you did. Right. And then post the treatment, post the radiation, post chemo, you know, the, the good news is you didn't have to go for a treatment the following week. Right. And so you're done with that. Where along that path did you start examining or changing your why?
1: Yeah, it was really during chemotherapy. Um, Admittedly, I'm not a recreational drug user, and so the drugs that they give um, patients while you're going through chemotherapy are really mind-altering drugs. I I was given Compazine, um, which is a drug that is given to schizophrenics. And so it's really telling your brain that you're not sick and... um, I had a particularly rough time because I was um, I was just in a fog, couldn't make decisions, um, and and it was frightening for me because such a control freak to now be um, controlled like that by a substance. To uh, and there's just they give you poisonous you know chemotherapy in your system, and then they give you drugs. To build up your bone marrow. And then, and then and there you have to take another drug because that can cause. And, and it's just, I always joke, it's this pyramid scheme of how this is treated. And, but I had so much time to think, wow, this is really a trip. And a few experiences that I had because I tried to live as normal of a life as possible. I didn't choose cold cap therapy, which a lot of women and I guess men could um, do, which is to uh, freeze your scalp with dry ice while you're receiving the infusion, Um, and it um, very often has been very successful to save um, almost all of your hair. My oncologist in February of 2015 said she had had one patient who had used cold cap therapy, had been very successful, but it had caused a lot of headaches, and it was very painful for her. And she said, um, but it's still so new in this country. Of course, in Europe, they had been doing it for decades because... They do everything before we do here. Um, It had just been started to be allowed here in this country, the the way I understand it. But she said, my oncologist said, we don't have any statistical data yet that proves whether or not cancer cells can still hang out in your scalp um, because the chemotherapy is not getting to it. I said, that's it. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not going to take that chance because I'm a data-driven person. I need statistics. I need, you know, all of that. And I said, I don't like the thought of losing my hair, but I'm going to do it. Because I'll never be able to look at myself again to make a, a decision like that. But I trust me, I do respect those that do want to keep their hair. It's, it just wasn't my choice. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was an example of I'm like, wow, isn't it amazing how I should be making all these decisions based on emotions? I'm, you know, Am I going to live? Am I going to die? But I went back and I made very logical, thoughtful decisions. That's a challenge.
0: It's You know, I think if you're in a heightened emotional state Mm -hmm. and you're already altered by whatever drug they poisoned you with this week (laughs) and then you're supposed to make a rational perhaps life-preserving or ending decision. At this juncture, looking back from the tail end of all the treatments Mm -hmm. into the diagnosis that you received, would you do something different today with the knowledge you have now?
1: Yes, only because the knowledge I have now and this is a segue into sort of the next chapter of my life, is that there are a number of extraordinarily um, important improvements that will be made in this cancer treatment process. And I try not to overgeneralize because there's so many different kinds of cancers and the treatments are very different. A lot of it has to do with how we're capturing data. And, for example, um, in my post-cancer life, I'm trying to focus my um, interests now in areas and businesses that are forcing change within the system that impacts how this process and the treatment process works. And an example is um, a company called Caliber MD. It's Q-A-L-I-B-R-E-M-D.com is their website. And I'm um, a new um, uh, advisor for them, on the board of advisors for them. What they are doing is, is, is really... I think they're going to force change in the industry. So right now, in my situation, I had that ultrasound, and then I had to have a, a biopsy to determine whether or not um, the tumor that they had or the spot they had located was indeed cancerous. And then after that happened, then I had to have a breast MRI to see if there was any more cancer that they hadn't been able to see on ultrasound. Um, and they saw more; they saw two more, and so I had to have those biopsied. And so what Caliber MD is introducing is a way. To um, And I'll try to explain this as generally, and I'm going to overgeneralize, but to really um, assign digitally, numerically, um, data points, biomarkers, if you will, and assign numbers to those to say this spot may be uh, a fatty tissue and we're going to assign it this number. This is definitely cancer and it's going to have its own number. And they can eventually define what kind of cancer. And so what they're going to do, I believe, I hope, is to... um, do away with um, perhaps biopsies because the, the, the data that they get will clearly 100% identify through an MRI image that this particular spot is indeed cancerous or some other kind of disease. So
0: the data is a, uh, <clears throat> is created by the MRI machine and is fed back into algorithm or whatever they yeah, have. So, exactly. so the data exists currently. It They're, just wasn't interpreted. Directly. Correct.
1: They're interpreting it and, and in such a way that... And there's a million biopsies performed every year in this country. And I had six of those, a million, <laughs> done in my year. <laughs>
0: That's a dubious um, honor. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and, and again, another side story. Why um, I'm so passionate about doing whatever we can to help make this process more efficient is that we knew that there were three breast tumors and we found that out through... Three biopsies, one of which was a vacuum-assisted biopsy, which is as horrendous as it sounds. That tumor was on my chest wall, so they literally have to go in with what I call the Hoover vacuum cleaner and slurp away all of the tissue to get to that tumor. And um, that was one of the more horrifically painful parts of this. But I went for a second opinion because, you know, in business, that's what you do—you get you get three quotes for this bid, and you know that's what we're trained to do. So I thought I'm gonna. I'm going to go for a second opinion consult. And I did, and it was a very efficient process. But um, my primary provider, where I had already decided I was going to be treated, um, they had looked at my right side, and they were convinced that there was no cancer anywhere on this right side or in my lymph nodes. But the second opinion doctors said, well, we see that on the MRI that you had there's one, we're seeing one lymph node that appears larger than the other on your right armpit. And there's, no one has given an indication or written an explanation of why that is, why they're not concerned. So we're going to have to biopsy that right side. So I I was, it's in my book and I said, because of someone's inattention to detail, I'm going to be butchered yet again. And, but I, I went along with it because I had so much to do. I didn't have time to solve all these problems. I had to get rid of cancer and get ready for chemotherapy. So I just, through the journal, through my, in my mind, I just kind of kept this list of like, wow, this, we can do better. We have to do better. And um, I can't imagine for someone who I guess isn't as organized or is certainly just completely freaked out and afraid, how do you go through this if you don't have the great support network? And I had an amazing support network, and I was still a mess. And so I had to write everything down, capture every detail. That's what brought me comfort.
0: Well, you know, I, I, as as you were talking, you mentioned book, uh huh, and folks are gonna go,
1: what book? <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> what book? Yeah. What book is that?
1: So, so um, thank you. Um, after I finished my uh, formal treatment, um, so many of my inner circle of friends encouraged me to publish my Diary basically, and that's what I set out to do. But I hired a writing coach because I was trained as a journalist to report facts, to report what people tell me. Um, it was beyond anything I had ever been trained to do to insert my own opinion into anything. That's just not what we were trained in the 1980s to do. So I hired someone to help me learn how to tell a story. And so um, she taught me a lot about okay, so you experienced this part of the treatment in this way. What impacted you in such a way that, you know, this? you experienced it in this manner? Well, it was something from my childhood. I'll give a quick example. Um, I always hated the color pink my whole life. I just am a, you know, I'm a girly girl to some degree, but I've hung out in a man's world. And I'm usually the only woman on a board of directors or whatever. That That has happened to me a lot. And so I've sort of gotten used to it. But when... I realized, and, and um, the whole Breast Cancer Pink campaign is wonderful because it brings incredible attention because one in seven or one in eight women are going to deal with this in their lifetime. I just, it just, I'm I'm an anomaly. It just made me nauseous. I don't send me anything pink, no pink ribbons, you know. And so my friends really kind of joked and laughed about it. And someone once said, you know, well, we assume you hate pink because, you know, you had breast cancer. I go, no, actually it's because when I was Four years old, four and five years old, I had a very weak stomach and I would always get sick in inappropriate locations. And so my mother would yell at me and um, I would, you know, I can't help myself. I just can't move. I'm just frozen. Um, But she would always make me take Pepto Bismol after getting sick in an inappropriate location. It was my punishment. And so I was like, wow, I hadn't ever put two and two together until. I had the time over 10 months of feeling horrible and worrying whether I would ever feel good again to really reflect and ponder on some of these things, and then the journaling. And I just discovered so much about myself and why I do the things that I do, why I'm passionate about the things that I am, and why some stuff doesn't even bother me. Um, I did a lot of forgiving of people in my life. I did a lot of emotional purging, and I just emerged... a much more grateful, happy, joyous person.
0: You know, I I was thinking as you were talking, so we're at the end in December. Uh Your treatments are done. And I presume then there's a PET scan or something that says you're done and we don't have to do anymore. And then I think about what's going through your mind. So you've been through this, Crucible, for lack of a better term.
1: Yep. I call it a crucible. Yep.
0: You know, and, and so you're on the other side of treatment. You're coming into the holiday season. Yeah. What was going on in your mind?
1: So I was so grateful. Um, You know, I went, Um, I grew up in central Nebraska, so we went back to visit my family. And my family, most of my family hadn't seen me. And so I had Oh, probably three-quarter, my hair was about an inch long. So it was still post-chemo hair, but it wasn't like freakish. And so... So you did lose your hair? Yeah, I did. No, I did. And um, I actually shaved my head before the hair fell out because I needed to be in control. But my hair <laughs> my yep. hair was um, halfway down my back. I had spent $200 every six weeks to have my hair colored and cut. And I'd done that for years. And that's how why I was like, oh, this just this just sucks because i've spent so much money on all this hair and now it's on the floor <laughs> but oh cool i'm gonna save oh probably about a thousand dollars this year <laughs> i mean
0: the business yeah is exactly
1: in. but um I mean, there's many great stories about losing your hair because who knew nose hair has a function it really does <laughs> um but the um the whole symbolism of, of being raw and naked and the stares and the uh, that was part of my, you know, that whole humiliation was part of my process. I, it, it's, and I, again, Bob, you're an ex-military man, but I had to be completely stripped naked and beat down in order to be built back up again. And that's really what this process did for me. So um, again, back to your question about December, it was just so good to see everybody. And it was so great for people. I could tell that they were comforted because I was um I look I was starting to look healthy again and I wasn't scary and because this, fr- this is frightening. It's frightening to be next to someone who has cancer. I know that. But um gave a lot of extra long hugs, saw a lot of family that I hadn't seen in a long time. And then uh, I have another quick funny story. I have this sick, sarcastic side, and I wanted to make light of what I had been through. And so um, I decided to do this epic Christmas card in December. And so I had um, a dear friend, she's a retired um, master sergeant in the Air Force, came over. She's an incredible photographer. And so she came over and took pictures of my husband, Rainy, and me and kind of Annie Leibovitz, black and white, very, um, just you look at the picture. And she shot just a headshot of him and me and my eyes are closed, and I'm snuggled up next close to him, and he's looking at the camera, you know, with this determined, you know, big. And and I'm just, I have a faint smile, and um, my eyes are closed. Like, I am so glad this year is over. And um, the photo alone brought people to tears, but then I had to add a sarcastic remark at the bottom, and I said, here's to fewer bad hair days in 2016. Love, Diane and Rini. <laughs> 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 and... Um, most of our friends were like <laughs> some were mortified that I would make fun of mm-hmm. myself like that. But that I just I needed to get past this. Mm-hmm. And that was humor was my way of just saying, hi, hey, I lived, I survived treatment. It's for me, it wasn't just surviving cancer, it's surviving treatment. Yeah, the
0: treatment they do their level best to oh, kill you.
1: God almighty, do they? Yeah. And um yeah, and 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 of course, kind of going back, especially chemo was definitely the hardest part for me because I have that princess stomach with the pepto and everything. And, but there were other people who were like, oh yeah, chemo, are you kidding? This is a, this is a breeze. Um, and so I went through times when I was really down on myself because I'm weak and I'm not thriving through cancer like everybody else seems to be. And so, uh, but I was in an open infusion room and which is, um, well, it has its pros and cons. I'll just put it that way. And so, I capture a lot of those conversations also in my book. Yeah, and uh, <laughs>
0: for the folks that don't, that so basically, there's an IV pole. Yeah. And the bag of your custom cocktail. Yeah. And
1: and the lazy boy lounge chair, and um, and
0: which, you're there for
1: um for the the adriamycin cytoxin. That was a three hour infusion.
0: That's a long time to be sitting still.
1: Yep, it is, and. um uh, adriamycin which they call the red devil um is red because it's so toxic that if any and i again you can see my pork scar mm-hmm. uh right here it probably can't it probably doesn't show up It looks well, like you got shot yeah yeah it's it's just a little a little indentation there
0: mm-hmm.
1: my little badge courage um so,
0: and that's where they ported all the. It
1: came yeah, out. so there's a they. They would go in with a needle, a port needle, uh-huh. at, before every infusion. You you have numbing, um, like lidocaine numbing cream, that you put over the port area, an hour before your infusion starts, and then they go in with this really thick needle, <laughs> and they just poke it through the skin and into that port. It's like a plastic, looks uh-huh. like a shape of a quarter, um, and um, then you know, they, then they hook up all the lines, um, to yeah. that. And then you just watch all of this poison flow into your body and you don't feel a thing. I mean, that's the thing is, um, only, you know, six to 24 hours later, does it start to really hit you? Um, but this Adrian the red devil is so toxic that it, if it should spill onto your skin, it'll fry your skin. And so the, uh, infusion nurses would come in, you know, in full chem gear <laughs> and the, time they walked in, I thought, oh my God, that's going straight. And my father-in-law from Salem, New Hampshire, God bless him. I was so sick after my first chemo and so he called to check on me and he goes, why are you so sick? Why does your stomach? So I said, well, these drugs are literally eating away at the lining of my stomach. He goes, what are you talking? I go, well, this is poison. That's why are they treating you with poison? And I said, well, that's, that's what chemotherapy is. Somebody got paid a significant amount of money to come up with a gentler term that means a poison injection. And he Mm -hmm. goes, well, why would they do that? And I said, that's how we treat cancer pop. And, um, so anyway, um, I don't mean to make light of this because it's a serious thing. But my way of dealing with this was to go back and say, yeah, let's talk about this. It's really a trip because um, my experience with anyone who would had cancer didn't want to ever talk about it. And I had all these questions of, well, what did it feel like? And so I talked to other survivors before chemo started, and I would ask them, what should I expect? And they would give little hints, you know, don't burn candles. You're going to be really sensitive to smells, which I was. And then I said, "But what did it feel like?" They go, "We, I don't remember. I chose to forget." And I and I was res- coping mechanism. Yeah, and I, I respected that. But I was such a Type A. I needed to I needed to know. So.
0: You know, and I think about <laughs> that, and, and it's a way to put a as a business person, you can frame it. Yeah. And you know, and as a data That's person, you know, there's there's difference between data and intel. Absolutely. You know, and and I think about and when we chatted a little bit before, and you said I've kind of got. The book draft year -hmm. year one versus book draft year two. Yeah,
1: yeah. The book has changed. Um, I was just very um, descriptive in the first version of this book. And then as time went on, and I got busy again with work and business interests. And I'm two and a half years out from the day that I received the diagnosis. Now... I, I'm able to really separate all the emotion and the, the pain and the nausea. And I just look and I'm like, God, some of this is just so inefficient. Some of the process, we can we can improve on this. Um, so the book now is um, part memoir. It's a year in the life. It's very descriptive about what it was like for me to experience my first chemo infusion and not take the anti-nausea drug. I was sick as a dog. I was the most idiotic decision I ever made, but I thought it was a steroid that was going to make me fat, and I admit all these things. It's embarrassing. Um, yeah, listen to your doctors. I mean, I'm lucky I survived that um, going through. And it was I was like you see in the movies back in the old days where you know you run into the bathroom. That's exactly what it's like. But halfway through chemo, I had finished the adriamycin and cytoxin. I, I had four of those infusions, which is notoriously how far part of those. Those are every other week. Every other week. Yeah, okay. it's, and I can only have, I think it's adriamycin once in my lifetime because it's so hard on your heart. Mm. And so I had echocardiograms in between. I mean, really keep a close eye on you. Um, but then I switched over to Taxol for the last 12 infusions, and it was right after I started Taxol that um, I, I I had um, done something also not very smart, I think, which was to have acupuncture to try to help quell the nausea. And I thought, oh, how harmless can acupuncture be? Well, as it turns out, we had a really rainy spring and winter when I was going through all of this. And so my allergies were just, my head was really inflamed. My ears, inner ears were really inflamed. So one night I was laying in bed. It was the night before my second taxol infusion. And I flipped over. And all of a sudden I saw eight television screens. That was my vision. My eyes were closed. And I opened my eyes and it was the same thing. And then they started spinning counterclockwise really fast. And I laid back on my back, and and I just watched. And those screens eventually came to a halt, and I got my vision back. And I'm like, what the hell was that? And I thought it was something chemo or the cancer had spread. And so I laid there. I got up. I came back to bed. I woke up my husband, and he goes, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know. There's something weird going on. And then I had to get sick. And I ran to the bathroom. And it was worse than any of the post-chemo sick I was hanging on for dear life. and so what it turned out to be was a horrific bout of vertigo that the um, there's a crystal in your inner ear that controls your spinning you know your balance and my whatever my brain was thinking that I was spinning and I, I can't even ever describe what that feeling is like to not have your balance. I just kept getting sick and sick and sick and I couldn't stop spinning. And so we called the doctor and they said, get her to the emergency room. And it was 3.30 in the morning. I didn't want to wake up the neighbors because they all knew I had cancer and I didn't want them to think I was dying. So it took an hour to get dressed and to have enough moments of stability just to walk to the car in the garage and checked in at the ER and uh, they gave me Valium to finally stop my heart because my heart was about ready to beat out of my chest and um, um, had another, I had a brain MRI again. And they walked in at, after six hours of that and said, you know, we can't do anything more for you. You would had a whopper bout of vertigo, take over-the-counter uh, motion sickness pills and some anti-nausea drugs, and we're going to check you out and send you home. <laughs> and so once again, vertigo had nothing to do with cancer, but it was likely the um, acupuncture that I'd had. I had a couple treatments. and it I'd had a few treatments of acupuncture before for aches and pains and stuff, but there were energy jolts shooting through my body. I was having horrific headaches. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? And then I had this vertigo. So I likely, who knows, but my inner ear was inflamed. It didn't help the situation. It probably was why I had vertigo. So
0: insult and injury.
1: Oh Roger that. And and so for the whole rest of chemo and the whole rest of that year, I had to wear um flat shoes. I couldn't wear high heels. I'd have fallen over. Um I drove myself, but I and I drive a fast sports car, but I had to stay in the same lane because I was afraid to turn my head because I thought it would trigger vertigo. And it had nothing to do with cancer. And so, boy, I tell you, you talk about being tested and finding out what you're made of.
0: You know, it's I, I think about you strike me as a bit of a control person. Yeah, a little bit. Just, Just a little a bit. Tad. And and I think about when you don't have control and there's nothing you can do about it To to kind of shift toward the business <clears throat> aspect of that. You know, in uh, pre-cancer, you presumably had a thought process about how you'd look at a business, how you'd arrive at a decision, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and so on. Post-cancer, post-vertigo, has that changed?
1: It has. That's a great question. Um, Before, I thought I was a really great judge of character. One of the businesses I invested was a farm kid from Nebraska like me. Didn't turn out so well. Now, it's just more commonsensical of, okay, uh, you want an investor to write you a check so that you can figure out whatever this is is going to work or not? <sighs> not really interested in that. Um, you know, that's what things like grants and SBIRs are for. I'm sorry. And I, I hate to be that. SBIR. Yeah, SBIR. And please don't ask me what that stands for. It's, okay. a, it's a government grant program. Okay. Um, but to me it's just more common sense than anything i, I cuz i would try to you know look at all the numbers and those are just made up numbers anyway and now i'm like hmm, do i understand it do i think it'll work is there a need and um is this something that somebody may not even care about but is going to make a whole lot of money cuz you can grow value really quickly that's how i it it, it is much less paralysis by analysis and much more do I need this? Does anybody need this? Or is this kind of your swan song and you've always wanted to do this because there's some small need? I don't, I, I it's hard to explain, but I just, um, I've also actually gotten away from it to say, does it solve a problem that we humans have mm-hmm. as opposed to, are we going to make a lot of money from doing this? And that's, that's really with um, my, my work with um the, the psychological impact of cancer, but also, is it going to help the system? Is it going to provide data that finally convinces the people in Washington or wherever to say, yeah, we're going to change this, and um, this will be healthy for everybody? I'm all about generating business cases and statistical data that proves this works.
0: You know, before I miss it, you got involved with DU. Yes. And it's
1: cope. <clears throat> uh-huh. Talk about cope. So, um, cope is the Center for Oncology Psychology Excellence, um, and, and and the acronym is Cope. And so, um, toward the end of my chemotherapy, I really thought I was losing it because the cyclical nature of chemo was tough for me because such a control freak. Um, I'm I'm like a dog. I need to have a schedule every day. The alarm goes off at four forty four, and I. Four forty-four. Yeah, because it 45. can't be can't be four forty-five. Got to have that extra minute. And so, um, but the thing with chemo, and it was week. These were weekly taxol infusions. And so, I knew on Wednesday afternoon I'd get the infusion. Thursday I'd be stoned from the steroids. I mean, I would be like hyper stoned from the steroids. I'd get all kinds of stuff done, and then Friday at ten o'clock in the morning I would crash into this comatose state of sleep, and it's. And this is notorious in and it. And, and uh, my doctor said, you know, you're going to hit a brick wall and you do a, a freight train hits. you. And so for the next three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it's all I could do to barely even function. And I had to take acetaminophen to get through that. And it's just, your body is just like rotting inside. It's what it feels like. And then Monday slog back to work, Um, Tuesday you start to feel pretty good, and then Wednesday it's time to go get shot up again. So that cyclical nature was really tough for me because I knew I was going to feel lousy this weekend, and I started to get, like, depressed about that. And so um, I asked my oncologist whether she could refer me to um, a counselor who had, let's see, I think my words were, could you refer me to someone who has experience working with a type A professional businesswoman, executive, whatever, all these descriptors who needs to feel like she's in control, but is not. And she, she's like, she started laughing.
0: (laughs) Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And she said, um, Diane, I understand what you're saying. I don't know of anyone who works individually with, um, you know, how to deal with all the emotions and everything that you're now, you know, everything's amplified. All your emotions are amplified because you're so stoned and paranoid and worried and sick and, and then the, the, the vertigo. And I, I said, I'm, not, I'm really a wreck. I need to get my life back in order. Can you help me? And she said, I don't know of anybody who you know, specifically is what you want, but we have a breast cancer support group here. Um, but if you do find someone who is willing to work with you, they likely aren't going to take health insurance. And I go, well, why is so little attention being paid to the psychological impact of cancer? Are you kidding me? She goes, I know. It's a real problem. Um, if you figure it out, please let me know. And she gave the example that she had a a breast cancer survivor patient who 10 years after going through breast cancer was really close to having a nervous breakdown because she was so afraid the cancer was going to recur. And I said, again, I ask again, well, why is there so little attention being paid to this? And she said, well, when it comes to cancer, the dollars, whether it's government funding or philanthropy, tend to go to research to find Mm Cures. And I go, well, of course, we have to continue working towards solving the underlying problems, which is all these various kinds of cancer. But I said, I'm going to go Geraldo on you here. Uh, I said, what about the fact that all of this funding and all of these, uh, all this research has in some cases resulted in more effective treatments? Um, in some cases, people are living longer. You know, cancer goes into remission or whatever the right terminology is. And she said, yeah, I, I again, I I don't know, but you're on to something. And I said, this is just crazy. I, I just, again, so I just molded um, over and thought about it. And I said, yeah, this, this has been such an emotionally impactful experience for me. I'm very fascinated by it, And it could be any traumatic experience, you know, which there are plenty in our lifetime. Um, Cancer is happening to me. So I had some friends at the University of Denver, some acquaintances, and They suggested that I meet with the Graduate School of Professional Psychology dean. Um, that acronym is GSPP, and again, this is um, the um, where licensed psychologists are trained. And um, GSPP at the University of Denver actually um, graduates the highest number of licensed psychologists in the whole state of Colorado. Who knew that? Um, so anyway, I met the dean, and we had a very and I shared my talk. You know, I was in there, I had finished chemo. But I was weak and I was having hot flashes because now I was in menopause and I had no hair. And I'm telling my story and to a bunch of psychologists who I know are there going, Oh, <laughs> but, but where um, do we start? Yeah, woo. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the dean, Dr. Shelly Smith Acuna, said, Diane, she's so eloquent. She said, She's so great. She said, Diane. Just love your story, and and what you're saying is very true. And it's um it's a an up and coming area of interest, and it's called health psychology. And I go, oh well, of course, you know, it's not just you know obvious traumas, any you know, heart disease, all of the health stuff can cause you know some kind of trauma. And she goes, yeah, it's something that we're looking at here, but we have yet to offer a specialty in health psychology. And I go, okay. Um, and she suggested I meet one of her professors, Dr. Nicole Taylor-Irwin, who um, had a lot of experience as a clinician working with um, cancer patients and survivors. Um, so I met with Dr. Taylor, and um, she was from Iowa. And of course, I'm a farm kid from Nebraska, so we bonded. And um, But we just started talking about her training. And, and I said, so how did you get your training to know the ins and outs of cancer and to know what to say and to how to help? Cancer patients. And she said, Well, I got my training at the postdoc level. And I go, why? Well, she said, because nobody's offering this kind of training at the graduate level while well, well, they're still still in school. And of course I said, Well, why? <laughs> and she goes, well, I don't know. I said, Well, can you go find out why? And she said, I will. So she went and she said, she emailed me that day and she said, Nope, no one's offering this at the graduate level. And I said, This is incredible to me. And I said, So we need to start and make sure all the practitioners are out there and trained and that it's an option if you're going to go be a licensed psychologist that you can get this specialized training in how to work with cancer. And she goes, so I said, I want to seed fund this specialty. And so I did, and it's called the Center for Oncology Psychology Excellence, or COPE. And um, it launched in February of 2016 on my one-year anniversary as a survivor. And my oncologist told me I was a survivor on the day I was diagnosed. So that was the anniversary of my diagnosis. And so um, the first cohort of um, COPE students finished their 12-credit specialty in August of this year, of 2017. And so it's up, it's going, we're training, we're bringing attention. We have a COPE clinic where we actually see patients there at DU. Um, And so, yeah, I I just am now fascinated by um, the psychological impact of cancer and, again, not necessarily just as you're going through the treatment process, but for years afterward. Because I've met plenty of survivors who are one to two years out and they just continue with this Mm depression-like state. It's understandable. Yeah, it is. And, um, again, I'm just trying to draw attention to the fact that, uh, again, Thank goodness for all the research. The treatments in some cases are more effective. We're living longer, but what kind of lives are we living? Talking about the quality of life and having resources there that, yes, you likely will have to pay out of pocket for. But, you know, things like um, for some of the terminal, whatever type of uh, illness or ailment you have, uh, anticipatory grief counseling. And, you know, it's this is something I don't wish anybody had to go through but the fact is there's a lot of it there's a lot more cancer one in every 3 women one in every 2 men is going to get some form of cancer in their lifetime according to the national institutes of health that's a it's beyond alarming and so um, i'm just trying to help bring attention to this to say let's let's look at uh, a treatment plan comprehensively and let's just not dispense more pills to deal with the depression let's let's have sit-down conversations and it's beyond support groups are wonderful for some people i'm not a very good support group person because i'm too busy analyzing everybody else so when it gets to me i'm like drooling and i i don't i don't know i don't even i've never even thought about this but i never say anything intelligent so i stay away from groups um but just drawing attention bringing attention to this and to say you know, once you walk out of whatever treatment room for the last time, you're not done because you're going back every. I'm still going back every four months to see my oncologist. I have graduated now; I only have to have slammograms once a year. Um, I had to have those every six months before, and so it. You don't just get to walk away and cancer's over. Um, my um, line that I'm going to have trademarked is: cancer is never invited, and cancer never leaves.
0: Well, it's kind of like the aviation business. A good friend of mine said, "You know, taking off is optional, yeah. landing is mandatory."
1: Right.
0: <laughs> you know, same kind of story. <laughs> kind of. Whoa.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, there's some great aviation. Yeah. There. Yeah. Absolutely. So. You know,
0: I, I, I think about as as we come to a close, <coughs> uh, for the folks that are interested in in your book when it comes out, yes, and how they reach out to you. How do sure. they do that?
1: So I'm um, embracing social media. I I am. I still work. Right now, I'm working about half time. Um, For an electric airplane company, we're developing uh, a a two- and a a four-seat electric aircraft called Sunflyer. You can find out more about that at sunflyer.com. But I'm also um, trying to now separate myself from just the business interests, and I'm devoting the rest of my time to finishing this book, which I I really hope to publish after the first of the year. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn and as I get more time, I hope to have more help to be a Facebooker and to be um, more present on social media. But you can reach out just uh, Diane M. Simard, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And that's
0: S-I-M-A-R-D. S uh-huh, uh-huh. I M A R D.
1: as N D I A N E M Simard uh, is is really a great way to reach out to me. Um, I. And being asked more and more to speak. And, and, and this is really my second chapter in my discovery I'm preparing myself to kind of move out in front and to be a voice and to bring attention to whatever you want to talk about electric airplanes or breast cancer or the psychological impact or how, in my case, um, cancer was just such a life changing event for me. And I am um, so much happier, fulfilled. Um, I feel like I have a mission every day, and there's just so much to accomplish. But I do want to focus on, this is not about me getting rich by selling books or giving speeches. It's about to say, I empathize. This is scary, scary stuff. There's so much of it. And it's okay. And it's okay that we all experience this differently. And people can try to give you good advice. But I finally realized that I just had to experience and this in my own way and embrace it and work through it and really understand. Um, and and I forced myself to to really dig in and dive in and say why am I so emotional about this and get the help that I needed. Diane it has been fabulous. Oh, thank you so much. You know, and,
0: and you know, and I can't imagine anybody listening to this that hasn't had cancer somewhere in their family. I've certainly had it throughout my family's history, right. and so um, I appreciate your candor and your willingness to share. Absolutely, and in particular, your advocacy for the issue.
1: My pleasure. Always. Always happy to talk about it. Thank you so much. You bet.